This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. If a friend asks how you're doing and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, hang it in there. Because if I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free, confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice-cold reward. Medela, you put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor, because you know the bigger the fight, the better the reward. Medela, the mark of the fight. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Port, Chicago, Illinois. It's 1957, and a bunch of men are whistling to work. The movie, The Bridge (laughs) on the River Kwai. Welcome to Unspooled. I'm Amy Nicholson. And I am Paul Shear, and this is the podcast where each week we watch one film from the AFI's top 100 greatest films of all time list, 2007 edition, to see if they are really as good as people say. Do they hold up, and how have they influenced the films that we watch now? Today we'll be talking about The Bridge on the River Kwai. Now, two weeks ago, in our last regularly scheduled episode, we talked about Martin Scorsese's Goodfellas, and we're going to get into all those comments here today. Amy... Before that, I want to say I loved your article in the San Antonio Express. That was such a great piece. Oh, thank you. That's my hometown newspaper. I was so touched that they wanted to talk about movies and about the show. I I, I love San Antonio. I really appreciate all of the reading that I got to do in that newspaper when I was a child. So to get to be in it, ah, it's lovely. (laughs) You know what? There's something about being in your hometown newspaper where like your best friend from from your first grade school, like, says hi. And you're like, oh, hi, I miss you. Oh, I love that. And, you know, uh, speaking of things that people loved, people loved this unspooled Vertigo poster that was designed by Kim Troxell, who does all of our amazing drawings. We actually made one for the winner of the unspooled trivia contest that was uh, part of the Facebook group on Discord that Amy and I hosted, really more Amy than I. Uh, and uh, we may actually try to release those because people really love those uh, the way that that poster looks. So stay tuned for that. And just a reminder that in our t-shirt store at tpublic.com, you can still get one of our very cool shirts where 100% of the proceeds goes to support independent movie theaters. You know, it's so important to support these places so that when we are back to normal, we can go there and enjoy some great films. Uh, And also, Amy, I want to say that I've been doing a show on YouTube right now. It's called uh, Marvel Presents the World's Greatest Book Club. And I know you don't love the Marvel world, but this is not the movie world. This is the comic book world. And I'm sitting down and talking to some amazing people about their favorite comic books. So if you've never read a comic book before, this might be a great place for you to start. Talking to people like 
Damon Lindelof, Phil Lord, W. Kamal Bell, Gillian Jacobs. Uh, and they're all telling me like what was their first kind of Marvel book that they fell in love with and you can kind of find them. And also we're talking about how you can support your local comic book shops, another small business that needs our attention. I love that. And if we're talking about other podcasts, you mind if I make a plug? Because, you know, my yeah. um, periodic mini series Zoom, where we like do yes. deep dives into strange niches of film, film history and the creators and stories. And, you know, we talked about horse actors and zombies and Jane Austen. We have a new episode coming out next week that I'm in the thick of right now on divas, which is Ooh. fascinating. The grand history of the divas leaping all the way back from Italian opera to Mariah Carey. And uh, Ooh, when I they come that. in and out of cinema, starting in the silent era to glitter. So it's been oh, awesome. super fun. And I, now I sort of regret when I named my podcast Zoom a year and a half ago, it didn't seem like a big deal. And now everything is called Zoom. So <laughs> what are you going to do? I don't know if that's good for us or bad for us, but we are still no. called Zoom. <laughs> I think it's great for you. I mean, Zoom has now gotten into uh, the normal uh, verbiage of a daily life. Um, you know, Amy, we had a very contentious, I wouldn't say contentious, we had different points of view about Goodfellas. And I think there were, it was a very respectful conversation, but we uh, agreed to disagree. And so many people, I mean, really got into the fray with their thoughts about Goodfellas. Um, we went to the message boards, we went on Twitter, and we pulled a couple comments that I think kind of encompasses a lot of the way that people felt. Um, first of all, let's start with uh, Jeremy Raddick, at Jeremy Raddick. He says, you know, I love this episode of Goodfellas. It's fascinating. It's the best example that sometimes a movie is just not for you, even when it's a classic. Amy Nicholson feels about Goodfellas the same way I feel about Titanic. It's great to hear her and Paul Shear go back and forth. And I, and I do like that. Like, there's no reason why anyone has to like a movie. I think that that's always the the thing that I get angry at. Like, you don't have to like anything. There's no one great movie. Um, it's all about taste. It's like stand-up comedy, art, everything. It's it's all subjective. Exactly. And I appreciate that Jeremy put it in the lens of Titanic because it's as bewildering to me that somebody couldn't like Titanic as I'm sure it is to people that I could find problems with Goodfellas. So you know what? There it is. We could be at peace about it. Um, Renee Figueroa said, you know, Paul, I was fighting for you, Paul, the whole way, every step of the way on the, unspo on the, on the Unspooled Goodfellas episode. It was frustrating, but he at least appreciated that I made him second guess some of the decisions made in that movie. To which I almost feel like I just want to clarify one more time about the age. Can I even clarify one more time about the age difference? Are you Go just gonna, for are it. We gonna, Go for are we going to age nine it. minutes? Because it keeps coming up. You know, I, I kept getting comments like since the episode came out of like, what's the big deal with the age difference? You know, people like Stephen Turk justly saying, you know, how can you be so critical of Joe Pesci's, Pesci's age in Goodfellas when kid and play were 30 year olds playing teenagers in house party to which I would say they were in their 20s. But point taken. I think I wish I would have articulated this better. I'm just going to give it one more quick shot. Bear with me. All right. OK, here's the thing. In something like House Party, say, they actually, I think, are very good at being people in their 20s playing teenagers, and they capture the teenagerness. There is, even though the age is not exactly the same, the spirit of the character is there. Whereas I'm just saying, in Goodfellas, because this is supposed to be a story about young men who are idiots, casting them as old people changes the story. It's different. And I would appreciate it or be able to empathize at least with a position that feels that. Well, let me try that again. And I would be able to find a piece with it if the story had then been tweaked. So it wasn't about young guys. It was about, you know, just middle-aged people who are kind of idiots in the mafia making self-destructive decisions. But the fact that the script left in all of the young man, wild child, whippersnapper kind of language to describe them and that acted like we wouldn't notice 
enacted like we wouldn't notice that Ray Liotta and Joe Pesci's characters were supposed to be the same age and suddenly aren't the same age. Enacted like all this generational stuff that, that was written in the script still made sense, even though it clearly didn't make sense. It's just the fact that the script didn't match the casting and they didn't, you know, comb through it and make it work as a united piece of art. It bothers me and it made me lose faith in the entire film. That's all. Okay. I'm not going to I'm not going to dispute you. I'm just going to listen to you and I'll ask that you listen to me because I have a defense <laughs> on my third act issue, the the cooking part of it. And I think somebody uh-huh. described something to me uh, online that actually encapsulated what I was trying to say to you and I'm sorry that I don't have it in front of me, but I can explain it uh, in a way. And that third act, Henry Hill is now in charge of his own kind of scam, like, or he's running his own con, like where as before he was always running business for other people. This is where he's employing his babysitter. He's employing his wife. So what we've seen throughout the film is that whenever the leader of the group is running a business, they're also doing a lot of the cooking. A lot of the time that's like a part of the thing. So it's like, and I don't even think that he's a good chef because I, I was making this comment on Twitter the other day, like, He's making chicken cutlets for appetizers. Like he doesn't even really know, but he knows that he's supposed to go through the motions. Wait, I think what's he's wrong trying- with making chicken cutlets for appetizers? Say I, I just, a very waspy Texan. No, I don't think there's anything wrong with it. I think it's just sort of like, I think he's trying to throw everything in. Like, I don't think there's any real idea about what the dinner is. I think he's like, I'm cooking, I'm cooking. I'm picking up my brother. He's trying to be the boss. And I think it's like a frenetic thing. Like when he's like, I'm just gonna throw these chicken cutlets in there too. It's like, I don't think there is a plan. And I feel like there's just an element of that that I really liked. It was like him now play acting what it was like to be in charge. And it's like, oh, if I'm in charge and I'm making the dinner, I'm picking up my brother and I'm running this con. And I feel like there was a part of that to it. So I think that that kind of answers a little bit of your, your issue about, Why does he all of a sudden want to cook? It's not like he has a love for cooking. It's that he has a love for kind of acting like the boss now. Like who is, you know, he's running his own game. He's running his own thing. So he's like mimicking things that he thinks is right. And I feel like that chicken cutlet line is a little bit of a a tip of the hat to that. He doesn't quite know exactly what he's doing. He's just trying to do what he saw. All right. I can be open to that. I can be open to that. I, I wish you could have burned the chicken or fucked it up, but I can be open well, we to didn't, that. Well, we weren't there for the eating. We only, <laughs> saw, we only saw when they finished. And by the way, they, they, ate, they, they finished at like 11 o'clock at night, which I thought was such a, um, again, like pointing at it. It wasn't like the right time for dinner. Like he was trying to do too much. But be that as it may, we had this conversation. But, be that uh, as it may. Be that as it may. Be that as it may. Um, uh, let's see. Michael Olivier, he at Michael Oles 17 wrote, you know, Amy is right about the name joke at the wedding. My big fat Greek wedding pulled the same exact joke. You know, this is the joke where like all of the people have the same name. It says it pulled the same exact joke with this is my brother X, his wife Y, and their children Anita, Diane, and Nick. And it was better without a narrator. Well, thank you, Michael. I've actually never seen my big, my big fat Greek wedding, which is... Uh, mm. Strange hole. I should. I grew up Greek Orthodox. Yeah. I think I was kind of resentful of it. Like, ah. <laughs> yeah, I never saw it either. Um, Thingy blah, blah, three writes, you know, on Goodfellas, I'll never forget a conversation I heard around the time this movie came out. A group of Italian Americans were talking and I heard one of them say, the Godfather is who we'd like to think we are, but Goodfellas is who we really are. Um, which is an interesting point of view. I, I think that, you know, the the truth of that is one is based on real life and the other one is a fictional account about the mafia written by someone who did no real discernible research, you know, except in, in, in kind of broad strokes. You know, I, 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 I buy that. 
That's fair. And uh, Getty Dubin at Dubes123 wrote, you know, the Goodfellas up was great. You say Henry Hill would not like Sid Vicious, which is me talking about, you know, doing the grand outro My Way song. Is the point of the song or songs you use that the character would like them or is it for the mood? And I was sort of saying that I think my problem with the choice of a Sid Vicious song, the kind of sarcastic Sid Vicious version of My Way that the film closes out with, is it feels like that song is supposed to be kind of a kick in the pants, go out the movie theater capper to what we've seen. And it just isn't. I mean, these guys don't have any punk rock attitude to me. They screw up and they're idiots, but there's nothing I think that punk rock about Henry Hill. So it just felt kind of like a gesture toward a mood without actually fitting the film at all. Does that make yeah, sense? It does. Uh, absolutely. And uh, Isolation Joy Division 1980 at uh, Casio Suzuki writes, I think Goodfellas is an intentional, enjoyable cartoon. Uh, stated explicitly by Joe Pesci shooting at the camera and a cut to Sid Vicious as the punchline. It's Scorsese saying, you get off on this, you pieces of shit. <laughs> I, 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 you know, I, I don't mind that, uh, that point of view. I definitely feel like it has uh, some heightened moments in it. And it's, you know, I think that goes back to the Henry Hill narration. It, Henry Hill is an unreliable narrator. I, I think 100%. And I think you see him make bad choices throughout. I think, I think never mind, never mind, never mind. Uh. <laughs> Um, maybe they're just as a peace offering. We should talk about um, the grand gift that Marina Carlson has given all of us. Marina Carlson has made a spreadsheet of the many films that she enjoys with suggested cocktail pairings. I absolutely adore this idea of like, you know, special meals, special things. It's a, it's a thing we kind of do in my house because my entire life is sitting on my couch watching movies. So what can I do to make each movie feel a little bit more special? And uh, Marina Carlson already knows this because I squealed at her when I opened up her spreadsheet of, um, of films. How happy I was that she had a cocktail for the Paperboy, that Lee Daniels movie that I was talking about. That was all Nicole Kidman being insane and a, the grossest, grossest John Cusack of all time. Uh, and her cocktail for that was the Alabama Slammer, which I had never had. So I had to Google it. And it turns out that the Alabama Slammer is a cocktail made of um, a few things. It has uh, amaretto, slow gin, and southern comfort. It's a, considered mm. like a 70s, bright, fruity, crazy cocktail that is known for being like the tailgate, the, the tailgate drink at the University of the Alabama. I am very Alabama. familiar. I am very Are you familiar, familiar? With that. Oh, yes. You I've know, never I, heard of this. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know if I've drank it, but I definitely knew of it. Um, you know, I, mean, I actually- I want pre- one. I object to having <laughs> Southern Comfort in my house, though. I don't like Southern Comfort. It made me super sick one time and I will never go back. Uh, I actually made a drink this week- um, a specialty cocktail for the movie Hobbs and Shaw. I I had a theory uh, after seeing that Hobbs and Shaw was on HBO Max. I was like, I wonder if you can make a drink combining Ryan Reynolds gin and The Rock's tequila. And I met up with my uh, friend who's a, I guess, a spirits uh, genius, uh, Pam Wazitzer. And we created a gin and tequila drink that I thought was absolutely delicious. And you can see that on my Instagram page. It is a blackberry um, infused champagne. It's three liquors. It's it's amazing. It's a bramble, but a little bit different than a bramble. Gin and tequila. I'm trying to wrap my head around that. You would really like it. Follow my tutorial and you'll see all you need is blackberries, gin, tequila, a little bit of sugar, champagne, and lemon, and you will be psyched. Fair enough. 
And I couldn't help but notice, you know, that Marina also included a cocktail for Best in Show, you know, the amazing Christopher Guest documentary. So if other people out there are like me thinking about Fred Willard wanting to raise a glass to him and thinking about rewatching Best in Show in which he shows up and just destroys the whole place. Her cocktail for that is a Mother's Ruin Punch, which I have had. And that is strong. I like that. And you know what? While we're talking about people who passed away, obviously Fred Willard, so, so sad. Uh, but also lived a very happy life and was 86 years old and and seemed to die just peacefully in his sleep. And that just seems amazing. He was working up until I feel like this uh, whole pandemic started. Uh, but I was really uh, devastated to hear that Lynn Shelton passed away. Uh, Mark Marin did an amazing tribute to her. They were uh, currently together as a couple. And I had worked with Lynn a handful of times and always such an amazing uh, person in addition to being a great writer and director. And if you have never seen or heard of her, you should watch Hump Day, Sort of Trust, Laggies. Uh, there's so many great uh, pieces of her work all over the over the place. And she's directed some of your favorite episodes of TV too. Um, but just an amazing uh, director who uh, passed incredibly uh, too early. I mean, she was 54, uh, just tragic, absolutely tragic. I second uh, that. I second that. Home Day is one of those yeah. films where I'm, the first time I watched it, I just thought, who had the guts to make this? You are incredible. Yeah, she's a really cool, she, she was a really cool lady. Um, and we didn't do a call to action this week. We didn't have anything because we played House Party last week. And I hope you enjoyed our House Party episode. We did a really fun Clue episode, which is up right now on YouTube if you missed that. Uh, it's very interactive. Casey Wilson, Rob Hubel, uh, Mike Hamford, uh, Jamie Dembo. So many people pop up in that episode. And it was such a blast. Uh, I've been loving doing these. We're going to take off Memorial Day because Memorial Day, but then we'll be back the week after that with a brand new episode. And uh, should we tell people what we're going to be doing, Amy? Let's do it. Let's do it. You say it. All right. We are going to be doing Coming to America. That's right. We are going to do a little bit of Eddie Murphy, which I'm so happy about. You know how I feel about Eddie Murphy. Uh, And so we'll be doing Coming to America at our next Unspooled Spool Party. And if you can't wait, if you can't wait until that to see Amy and I, maybe the next best thing. And look, I am very hard pressed to replace Amy in any way, but... um, uh-huh. I am going to be uh, I'm going to be hosting a live watch of Galaxy Quest with Griffin Newman, who's been on our show before. And Griffin, uh, you know him from his uh, great podcast, Blank Check. And we are raising money for um, the Motion Picture Fund. This is uh, the fund that helps uh, actors and directors who are older, especially this time in crisis. So we're going to be doing this live event on Friday, May 22nd. Uh, starting at 4.55 Pacific time. Uh, we'll be watching Galaxy Quest, having costume contests. It's really fun. It's like it's like a, a screening room meets a Zoom room. It's on this platform called Sia, which is C-Y-A dot live, Sia live. And uh, you'll see Griffin and I chatting up all things um, Galaxy Quest this Friday, May 22nd. You can look on my social media to find out how to get there. But it's $4 and all that money is going to uh, the Motion Picture Fund, which is a very important uh, organization uh, to raise some money for, always. That's very important. That's so cool. Yeah, so that's what we got going on. Amy, it's time for us to revisit David Lean. Are you ready? Oh, am I ever. I got my sweatpants on. I'm limbered up. We have another epic. Let's talk about it. All right, let's... Or I think you actually mean, let's unspool it. No, I didn't mean that, but keep trying (laughs) it. Go on. (laughs) The year is 1957. 
Toyota debuts their first car sold in the U.S. It's called the Toyoped Crown. In Little Rock, Arkansas, nine black students dared to seek an education despite outrage from citizens and even the National Guard. Future astronaut John Glenn sets the transcontinental speed record. The USSR launches Sputnik 1 and Sputnik 2. The latter contains the first animal to enter space, a dog named Laika. And she was a very good girl. Amy, you actually are a big fan of Laika, I'm right? a huge Laika fan. Yeah, Laika was a stray that they took from the streets of Moscow. They figured that she had a, she was a tough woman that they thought could really handle the training. She's a complete badass. And the saddest thing, oh, no, sorry to depress people at the start of this, but I'm a big Laika nut. I've got Laika posters all over my house. Laika and Belka and Strelka. I've seen Belka and Strelka. You got me started. I've seen the taxidermy uh, them. But yeah, the last weekend of Laika's life, one of the engineers who worked on on the ship took her to his house, let her play with his kids. It was the first time Leica ever went to a real house and was treated like a pet. And then they blasted her off into a space and she died. Oh, that's a yeah. sad end. Well, didn't mean to bring you down on that note. Uh, anyway, in 1957, audiences are watching around the world in 80 days. Jailhouse Rock, 12 Angry Men, and today's film, The Bridge on the River Kwai. It ranks number 36 on the 2007 AFI Top 100 list, down a lot. Uh, since its original ranking of number 13. This movie was 13 on the AFI Top 100 list. You hear disdain in my voice. We'll get into that in a second. Uh, let's play a clip. When your job's done, who knows if we can return by this route or, or whether we could find you if we did. If you were in my shoes, Josh, I wouldn't hesitate to leave you here, and you know that. He doesn't know it, but I do. You'd leave your own mother here if the rules call for it. He'll go on without me. That's an order. You're in command now, Shears. I won't obey that order. You make me sick with your heroics. There's a stench of death about you. You carry it in your pack like the plague. Explosives and L-pills, they go well together, don't they? And with you, it's just one thing or the other. Destroy a bridge or destroy yourself. This is just a game, this war. You and that Colonel Nicholson, you're two of a kind. Crazy with courage. For what? How to die like a gentleman. How to die by the rules. When the only important thing is how to live like a human being. Amy, who's in it? What's it about? The River Kwai. It is the story of a group of prisoners of war who have been taken captive by the Japanese during World War II. They are asked to help build a bridge to be part of this gigantic railroad that Japan, the Japanese army, wanted to build to reach all the way up to India. Um, On the Japanese side, representing the Japanese military, you have the great classic massive silent era sex symbol Sesue Hayakawa uh, as Colonel Saito. And then on the uh, English and American side, you have William Holden, a face we have seen nonstop uh, throughout this entire list process as the American Lieutenant Commander Shears. And you have Alec Guinness as Lieutenant Colonel Nicholson, one of the rare fictional Nicholsons, I have to admit. My heart fluttered a little bit. My name is not usually a character name, but he is the uh, British officer who believes very much in the rule of law, the Geneva Convention, despite most evidence being everybody could give a flying hoot about it. Well, by the way, you said Nicholson is a rare name. I felt whenever they were saying uh, Shears, <gasps> I perked up. So it really was oh a Nicholson and Shears film. Yeah. I didn't uh, even think about that. We're I mean, it's united. not the same. We're united, but there is a little bit of a connection there. Uh Amy, this film's number one now. The Nicholson and Shear film. This on the is list. it. This is this is our movie. This is it. We've done it. Um, I, I there's so much to talk about in this film. It's it's an epic. David Lean directed it. Sam Spiegel produced. Sam Spiegel again, another person we've talked about a lot as a very hands-on uh, producer, and seemingly from all my research, 
seems to be very hands-on in this. But in watching this film, I found it to be incredibly basic. I'm not saying that that's bad, but it's a very kind of simple film. I mean, what, what do you think about it? Well, yeah, I mean, let's talk about what we have happening here, right, in this plot. You have the Japanese officer who is under a deadline. Like, he has to get this bridge built by a certain day on his calendar. And if he does not get it built, he has brought such shame upon himself that he knows he has to commit um, harakiri. So you have this man obeying the orders that he needs. And everybody else in this film is obeying different orders or principles that, so that suit them. You know, Nicholson very much believes in this. British rule of law, where it's a gentleman, gentlemen are in the army. And if we all just follow the letter of the law, surely you believe that officers aren't entitled to work, blah, 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 blah. And then you have, of course, the American being the American who only looks out for himself and is like, I'm a giant cynic. None of this means anything. Even life means anything. I mean, you get this really sense of his point of view so early on in the film when he's burying yet another of the prisoners of war have been in the camp with him. And this is how he treats the funeral. Here lies... No, Weaver, I've forgotten who we just buried. Thompson. Oh, yes. Here lies Corporal Herbert Thompson, serial number 01234567. Valiant member of the King's Own, or the Queen's Own, or something, who died of Berry Berry in the year of our Lord 1943. For the greater glory of. What did he die for? Ah, come off it. No need to mock the grave. I don't mock the grave or the man. May he rest in peace. He found little enough of it while he was alive. I'm with you, Paul. I expected this movie. This is one of the ones I hadn't seen before either. I expected this movie to be one of those John Wayne good guys, bad guys prison escape kind of movies and i guess i should have been clued off by the sign of of william holden in here that bridge over the river kwai is actually not that far away from something like dr strangelove that it's a movie all about how insane the military is but just done in that kind of straightforward here's our mission this is what happening is happening we're not making any overt jokes and yet the anger of dr strangelove is so all over this film i was not expecting that And, you know, here's an interesting clip I found. It's actually a soldier that was a POW there reading from his diary of his time when he was building these bridges. So take a listen. The appalling conditions have made us dangerously thin. We have no beds, inadequate shelter, atrocious diet, and no sanitation. We have lost all our clothes, shoes, and have taken to wearing our shirts as loincloths. In almost no time we have become skeleton men. Nearly one-third of the POWs die in captivity. It's, I think, really kind of fascinating because they do actually capture what that camp looked like. And I think very similarly to The Grapes of Wrath, really bring you into the reality of it. It, It's, Yeah, it's a lot more cynical than I was led to believe. I thought this was going to be a very patriotic film about, you know, soldiers teaming up to defeat an enemy. And what you really get is a much more internal film. This is a film about soldiers and their struggles with their jobs as soldiers and what they need to do to basically get ahead and 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 work in a war. I mean, I'm calling it work, but you know, they have deadlines, they need to keep their sanity, and I even found myself finding a connection to Saito. You know, it's like it's not 
good and bad as much as I thought it was going to be. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it feels like this is a movie that's all about, I guess I would call it, quote unquote, the principle of the thing. And just everybody right. in the film has a different definition of what the principle of the thing is. You know, William Holden's American is like, the principle of the thing is, I would like to stay alive and I would like to go home and I am sick of this whole war. This war is stupid. Uh, Saito's principle of the thing is, I've been given an order and I have to follow my order. And and Nicholson is such a fascinating character. God, it feels like I'm talking about myself. Nicholson yeah. is such a fascinating character because his principle is is so gentlemanly and so courtly and he's so logical about it and so calm and explaining it. And he's like, oh no, I will be locked in a hot box willingly if we're going to follow the principles of officers are not supposed to work. I'm willing to be locked in a hot box. I'm willing to have all of my men pass out or maybe even risk getting machine gun standing so I don't have to break the Geneva Convention. And his principle of the thing winds up being so self-destructive that he decides he's going to build the best bridge for the Japanese. That this logical system of like following what a gentleman would do in war means, well, if I have to build a bridge for the enemy, I'm going to build them the best bridge and it's going to last for 60 years. But it also speaks to the idea of, you know, Stockholm syndrome, right? To a certain degree. It's sort of like he, I believe, starts to align and find purpose in being a POW. Like the only way that he can get through this is by giving himself a task and doing the best job at it because I think it keeps him sane. I think when you look at Shears, you're talking about a similar character who is getting through by lying. I mean, like we find out midway through the film that, you know, he is kind of a soldier with stolen valor. You know, he's not who he says he is. He's not, you know, there's a little bit of, maneuvering. Uh, you know, by the way, he also escapes and the two people he escapes with, they get killed and he just kind of moves forward and we're seeing him on a beach enjoying drinks. Like he, he really has it, you know, he's kind of made his own, um, not excuses, but justifications to be able to live in this war and live with his own decisions in this war. So I, I found that point of view to be fascinating. And the same way I could also say about Saito, like Saito doesn't want to give in to Alec Guinness's character, but then like, you know, using that date of the Japanese battle against the Russians to justify releasing him from the hotbox because he clearly lost, but he can't admit that he lost and he doesn't really want to kill him. Like there's so many internal uh, politics going on with these characters that that was really fascinating. Uh, and I think the movie just gets really driven down to one scene, which is the blowing up of the bridge. But there's so much more kind of there uh, before that. Yeah, I mean, the jockeying for power and control between the different characters in the film, you know, or really kind of just boiling it down to the jockeying for power between Nicholson and Saito, you know, the way that Nicholson is like, I have to keep my men in order and they have to believe that I'm in command, even though he is not the one with the machine guns. And like the lengths he's willing to go to to try to make his men believe that order still reigns, even though he's not he does not have the power and the way he gets power from Saito and how Saito has to exactly try to save face and figure out excuses for the fact that it's okay I'm allowing you this power now I'm it's my choice to give it to you when it kind of isn't you know we're led at the beginning of the film by Shears to think that Saito is this bloodthirsty killer right he's like most men here you know if they don't desire die of diseases they die of Saito and so we're built up to this idea he gives you know that that first speech you hear from Saito let's listen a little bit of that a word to you about escape. There is no barbed wire, no stockade, no watchtower. 
They are not necessary. We are an island in the jungle. Escape is impossible. You would die. So you're set up at the beginning of this film to think we're watching something like, oh, what was that Angelina Jolie Japanese prisoner of war movie for a few years ago? Do you remember the one? Um, oh, yes. About, it was, yes. It was like Unbroken, right? Unbroken. Yeah. Or Unbreakable or Unbroken, Unbreakable. Yeah. One yeah. of those. That you know, you're set up that you're thinking you're going to watch one of those jingoistic military movies about how the Japanese are cold and bloodthirsty. And yet, Saito, we have scenes of him crying alone. We have scenes of him trying so hard to get Nicholson to meet him halfway. I mean, one of the things that David Lean said about about the character is, and I'm using his words, and one of his words is very dated and uncool, um, but his point is more sophisticated than the word. David Lean said, I don't want to say that Saito is an uncivilized little oriental. I want the colonel to say it. He wants Nicholson to say it. He wants the audience to see him as another human being that he's almost trying to triangulate the character of Saito so that you see Nicholson be racist to him and Nicholson think like anything he can do, I as a British man can do it better. But Lean is trying to kind of twist that around and make the audience realize that the colonel is wrong and racist and that Saito, Saito isn't so bad. He's just a man who, you know, wanted to be an artist with school in London doing his job. Exactly. And I think what's so interesting is that these characters are actually based on real people. The Colonel Saito in the film comes from Major Saito, uh, who, unlike the former, was said to be one of the most reasonable and humane of all the Japanese officers. And Lieutenant Colonel Tuzi, who is the basis for Colonel Nicholson, respected Saito so much that he spoke up on his behalf at the War Crimes Tribunal after the war, effectively saving Saito from execution. So you see this like I could I could tell that Lean wanted to at least acknowledge this kind of mutual respect or, you know, because they're both soldiers doing their best at being soldiers to a certain extent. It's true because sometimes I think when you win a war like this happens, people can't really help where they're born. And mm-hmm. the little choices that make you do things that then become evil and I mean, because I'm not at all saying that the Japanese were nice during World War II. On the whole, they did a whole lot of horrible stuff, horrible stuff, especially right. there. I mean, in building you know, the real life bridge that this is based on, which is really two bridges, I think they killed something. The estimate is like 80 to 100,000 just of the local civilian population and another 13,000 Americans or another 13,000 people from the Allies. So it's it's not at all a question of good, but there are individual men in there who are just like, my well, dad made me do it. It, it, yes. it, it, it's, it. It's so easy to demonize on a large level. And this film makes a point of humanizing on the individual level. And at this time in our culture, it's a very, I think, a very unique point of view to tell this kind of story. And I think we talk about that with Lawrence of Arabia, well, obviously. We've talked about that in um, Platoon. Um, and, you know, this idea of like war is something that no one really ultimately wants to run towards. But when they're there, how do you justify the person that you have to become, right? And the person that you are. And this movie is very subtle about uh, about that. But I really, I think that that's like, to me, the most interesting thing about this movie is that idea of that battle, uh, you know, and and showing the emotionality that you carry with it and and seeing how, you know, Alec Guinness at a certain point 
is so focused that he's stopping to look at his own soldiers and take care of his own soldiers because his ego is, I need to do the best job as my soldiers. So he's willing to take wounded and sick soldiers out to finish this bridge just because his own ego needs it to happen. And that's yeah, the way he has that Saito to prove like, that the British are the best. Yes, and Saito is like, and if I don't finish this bridge in time, I'm going to kill myself. So you really have, it, it's it's this grandiosity in in and or I should just say narcissism. I mean, there's a, there's something about these two characters are incredibly narcissistic, uh, and and of course there's there's a I think a, a mutual respect because of that. You know, yeah. the, who can do better? Yeah. Like not having seen this movie before, I really went on a journey with this Nicholson character of, you know, there he is, like our noble hero standing there, like abiding by the principles, blah, 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 blah. And then when he starts sitting down and like Saito is, can I feed you some food, blah, blah, blah. Can I tell you a little about my story of my life? And you see Nicholson become so cold. I mean, that scene where Saito's explaining, let me tell you, I will have to kill myself. When you hear Nicholson's voice in this, you know, he basically says, like, go ahead, let's listen. Do you know what will happen to me if the bridge is not ready in time? I have the foggiest. I'll have to kill myself. What would you do if you are me? I suppose if I were you, I'd have to kill myself. I mean, in that scene, I was so, I suddenly went from this movie is okay to, oh, that's such a compelling thing. I suddenly was angry at Nicholson and I was glad this movie let me take me on that path. Well, I also think what is kind of fascinating in doing my research on this is that this is not a script that came easy to anyone. This is not a script that everyone loved. And to have that kind of nuance and a script that seemingly was rewritten and rewritten and rewritten, you know, like Lean hated Carl Foreman's original version of the screenplay, and he asked Norman Spencer to come and write a new treatment. Then Foreman rewrote the script, but then Sam Spiegel was unhappy with that finished product and asked Calder Willingham to come in and rewrite that. And then Lean was unhappy with his work. And then Michael Wilson was then brought in uh, to work with Lean on the script. And they don't know how much Willingham's contribution was in the final script. And that's not even really determined. And then, I mean, the scripting issues of this movie are really interesting because uh, the two credited screenwriters were blacklisted in Hollywood and their names were taken off the film. Uh, They've recently been replaced on the film. But uh, when it won the Academy Award, they gave it to the author of the novel, who was French, didn't speak any English. Did not uh, write any of the scripts. Didn't write any of the script, but just was the basis of the book. Um, And yet is a writer who I absolutely love. I mean, did you catch who that writer was and what else he did? uh, Pierre Boulet, I don't know uh, what else he did. No, I know that name sounds very familiar. Oh, you do. You're going to be able to picture these credits as soon as I say it. After this whole thing with Bridge Bridge on the River Cry and he won the Oscar for this, our, our man Pierre, the original novelist, wrote Planet of the Apes. Oh, that's where I know that name. Okay, yeah. yes, yes. And don't you wow. see a little bit of the Planet of the Apes in this? Like this idea of man's inhumanity to man in a setting that's just harsh and people are being put in cages. And there's yes. you know, people who think one rule of law is is extreme. And then it's like, what happens when two people with two different systems of belief clash? Well, that makes sense because Planet of the Apes is a POW movie. I mean, it is a, a prisoner held in a very hostile land. And- in a weird way, I kind of feel like it's directly the same movie, you know, without the bridge uh, in, in some respects. Yeah, like piecing these two movies together, being a person who loves Planet of the Apes, the original so much, I had not realized, I, I feel like an idiot. I never looked into Pierre before. 
Pierre was a real POW. Like he was in the military oh. and he was captured and he actually did two years of slave labor in the Mekong during World War II. And so he came out and he was really purging these ideas and putting them in. And, you know, he was a French person um, in the military, of course. And he felt very touchy about the perception of the French at the end of the war. You know, there was this whole thing like, oh, the French, well, they were collaborators. And the British would always look down on the French for being collaborators in World War II, for having the Vichy government. It was actually the Vichy government who helped arrest him and put him in prison. So he was no fan of the collaborators either, but he was so irritated by this perception that they just gave in and this country became a country of collaborators that that's what he put into this movie. He showed a British person using their logic to become collaborators, to show those steps, to really be like, have empathy for the kind of position a person gets put in. Well, I think what you said earlier in the podcast is right. We are looking at war through the lens of this group did this. And at the end of the day, there's always individuals there. And what we're finding, I think, a lot of the times is that, yes, individuals were conflicted about having to do what they needed to do. And we see that in Platoon. I think that, you know, so that's written, obviously, by someone who served in Vietnam, one of the first pictures that was written by someone who was there and not just wanting to be there or, you know, fantasizing about what it was like to be there. And then you have Pierre Boulet, who is the same way. Like, I'm telling the story of the people that I know. And I think that that's why those two movies feel so much richer, because they lose a little bit of the, the Hollywood good guy, bad guy, uh, rah, rah, rah patriotism and kind of show you what war is, which is people having to do follow orders. I mean, follow orders and that's it. And if you don't follow orders, there are consequences. And I'm not saying that you have to follow orders blindly, but when you're in the service, you have made that agreement to a certain extent. Exactly. Especially if you were in the service at a time where you're getting drafted. I mean, we've talked about this a ton of times on the show, Paul. There are so many war movies on this list. There's, to me, too many war movies on this list. However, as we're putting them all together, I appreciate that the war movies on this list are, for the most part, really complicated about the cost of war. We don't have a lot of rah, 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 we did the best thing, those guys suck movies on the list. All of them are getting at the same point, you know, that war is madness. And to be even to even just exist as a figure in war, even if you don't even survive through it, even if you die in the middle of it, means participating in madness. I mean, that's the point of MASH. That's the point of, it, there's a touch of that, I would say, yeah. in um, in uh, Saving Private Ryan. Maybe not as much. I feel like Saving Private Ryan is almost safer than the rest of them. But that's definitely the point of um, Dr. Strangelove. It's just there over and over again. It's in Platoon that you cannot go to war and emerge a clean soul. I do think, though, that when you're dealing with a very complicated issue like this, I feel like MASH is a flawed film. I feel like uh, Platoon is a flawed film. And, uh, and you know, I, I, I think there's something about, can you tell this story and also make a great film? I don't know if I think Bridge on the River Kwai is worthy of being at number 36 or definitely at number 13. I think that this movie probably is up there because of that bridge scene. It's an iconic scene. But I feel like there, there are things about this movie, while really good, that feel incredibly bloated. Too. Like, because I, I was thinking during this, like, would I rather have Cool Hand Luke on this list? Because that's something, a movie also about being a prisoner and and wanting to fight back and, you know, fighting against the system. It's a different movie. Great Escape, much more of a big Hollywood. That's the rah, rah, rah movie. Um, 
it's fine. It's hard to find that balance. I think Saving Private Ryan probably comes the closest to being a really capable film that has these moments. And and I would also put on that list probably Schindler's List as well as yeah. another movie that is uh, dealing with more complex themes, but then also a compelling film. Talking to you about it, I'm loving talking about these characters. In the moment of it, I was like, it just felt more bloated than it needed to be. It's, you know, two hours and 40 minutes. Um, not that I judge movies by the length of time, but it didn't feel like the story was worthy of that amount of time. The story is very simple to me. I agree. I think there's something in the fact that we're doing Bridge Over the River Kwai after Lawrence of Arabia when they're made in the reverse order. You know, mm-hmm. Lawrence of Arabia, David Lean's follow-up to Bridge Over the River Kwai, which also has Alec Guinness, has this scope that feels more like it deserves to be an epic yes. where all of that space you I am happy to fill up the space of that movie in a way that Bridge of the River Kwai doesn't to me like I know it's early in the episode to be doing this but since we are talking about like our our war list of things I would be very happy if what we did on this list is I would be happy just having Lawrence and getting rid of Kwai altogether to be honest I'd get rid of Kwai I'd get rid of Platoon I get rid of mesh uh, because at least Bridge Over the Kwai is making their, their points without just being a bunch of dicks. And I would, of course, put in Born on the Fourth of July, which I think is right. fantastic. And I feel like I could be pretty much at peace with that. I, I have to rewatch Born on the Fourth of July. I haven't seen it in quite some time. Uh, but I think based on what we were talking about, it definitely shows that other side. And I think it has that element that we really loved about um, uh, the best years of our lives. You know, this kind of dealing with the after effects of this, because I think what we're showing right now, a lot of this is how it affects people in the moment. And, and there are some really beautiful things in this film, but it does kind of lack a scope to it. It, it is. And I think the moments that we're getting that I, that really pop in this movie are a little few and far between. It's like, Oh, that's a great performance. And the performances are really great. William Holden, you know, I was thinking about William Holden. I'm like, why doesn't he get the respect of Jimmy Stewart? Because He's in these giant classic films, but I don't think he's on the tip of people's tongues as like one of the, you know, great actors of this era. Yeah, he has about as many films on this list as what, as De Niro does, as as yeah. Cary Grant, as Jimmy Stewart. They have slightly more, but he's all over here. We saw him in Sunset Boulevard already. Um, we saw him in Dr. Strangelove. I think we've seen him again. I think, I mean, he's he's everywhere on this list, but you're right. We don't think of him at the top of our list. And when we think, let's say, like, who are the actors who define the AFI list? And yet, when he made Bridge Over the River, Bridge on the, I keep, I'm going to keep calling it Bridge Over the River Kwai. I don't know why, just because over and on mean the same thing right now, and I'm yep, not going to get it straight. But um, he was the highest paid actor in Hollywood. Like, to have wow. William Holden in your movie in 1957 was like, whoa. I think he had a contract where he had, it might have been as much as 10% of the box office gross. And this being the number one wow. movie of that year, William Holden made bank on this film and you know and you know, we talk a lot about how these big stars were and apparently a lovely guy like uh you know when he first arrived on set everyone was like oh my gosh david lean is the worst we hate him and they said that he took on this persona of like a sports coach and just basically got everybody you know excited about what they were here doing and the movie that they were making and and seemed to be the the real leader uh, for, you know, I think what you need sometimes on a film like this, when you have a director like David Lean, who is exacting and trying to get everything. And like you said, it's not the scope of Lawrence of Arabia. Um, but yet 
it is a massive film. I mean, the bridge in modern day cost was like 2.8 million. They really built a bridge. It cost 250,000 back in the day, but that's 2.8 in our, our money. Yeah, um, and they really blew it up, which is oh, yeah. insane. With a and, train, yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, and the first time they tried to blow it up, it didn't even, they didn't even do it. You know, They had this whole safety protocol where all of the different cameramen who were staged at different points of the of the bridge, they were supposed to hit record and then run to safety. When they ran to safety, they were supposed to turn on a light that let David Lean know they were safe. The last guy forgot to turn on the light. So as oh, the no. as the train was coming, David Lean was like, "That's one light, two lights, three lights. The fifth one's not on. We can't blow up the, the we can't blow up the bridge. We can't do it." So they had to reset back up the train. They lost a whole day. All of the VIPs who came to watch the train blow up didn't get to see it because of this oh, one wow. cameraman who cost them so much money. Which I can weirdly relate to. I told you I did that. I talked about it when we did our um, when we did Raiders of the Lost Ark. That yeah. I went to that shot for shot remake, and on the last day of shooting, we were supposed to blow up the German plane. I was watching them redo the scene with like a German guy ahead in the propeller, blah blah blah, right. blow up the plane. Indy runs away. Part of the movie that doesn't actually have to be in the movie at all. And um, the very last day, we were all sitting on this hill waiting to watch this airplane blow up, nervous as hell because the guy who was in charge of blowing up the airplane was just putting in like. C4 and dynamite in. He was just some dude. He was just some dude from Mississippi being like, I got it. Put it all in. They ran away. The, you know, indie, the indie character ran away and it didn't blow up. And we were all just like, what? What's happening? People started to burst into tears. Everybody started crying. And the guy was like, oh, hold on. I'll fix it. Wandered up, tried to like kick things hit things and it blew up and he did a somersault backwards and everybody lost their mind. He went unconscious. Whoa, so I was thinking about that, reading about the train and thinking that's even on a bigger level, man. You've been out here in the jungle for eight months. This is your eight months. I was going to lose my mind after being in Mississippi for two weeks. Well, I mean, I think that they do a great job of even parodying things like that in Tropic Thunder, the opening sequence, you know, where they're like just blowing up everything in the field like this, you know, whenever you have a film set around explosives, it's such a nerve wracking experience. And then when you have somebody like a James Cameron or David Lean, it's going to be 10 times harder because they're going to want those close-ups. I imagine, you know, in, uh, was it 1942 that just came out, like the same idea, like they want this realism. And so it's, the tensions are that much higher. Um, and by the way, when when the bridge didn't blow up, the reason why they lost so much money is because the train went over and then crashed because they, <laughs> they didn't build enough. They didn't build enough runway for it because the train was never supposed to go over the bridge and come back. It was just going to blow up. So the train crashed, uh, which is crazy. Um, but this movie, I think, you know, all the imagery is that bridge blowing up and there's something about it, too, which is kind of, it makes me laugh because this is a fictional film based on a real life event. Like there were uh, POWs that were forced to build a bridge. It didn't happen over eight months. It happened over two years. Uh, and those bridges, uh, I don't think were really ever destroyed. They weren't destroyed like this, by the way. No, you um, can still go visit them. There's a, yeah. there's a steel one and a wooden one. You know, it just sort of like, all right, so they're creating this thing and then they're, they're wrecking the final act because really the, the movie breaks into two halves. You know, when they get uh, Shears to come back because he knows the location of the bridge, he's kind of running this Mission Impossible unit uh, to, you know, uh, essentially take down the bridge. But you know it. Like, so I was even looking at old posters of it. it. They're letting you know, like, when you come, 
you're going to see a bridge explode. And I almost found it to be, maybe I've seen it too many times in like, you know, history of film retrospectives, uh, you know, anticlimactic. But then I did some research and I saw that there was like a USC or UCLA film school class that William Holden was doing the intro for the film on. And he's narrating the making of the film and they show it in there to the film class. It's like, now the movie you're about to see. Now, this is how we directed this scene. And they show the explosion of the bridge. I'm like, oh, this is their, this is their signature moment. This is their signature piece. And I, I don't know how you feel about that, to have the climax of the film or the reveal. I mean, I guess the movie is more than that, but it also isn't more than that because it seems like that's the price of admission, to see this bridge blow up. Um, yeah. And then the movie just kind of ends, yeah. I mean, it's it, it's hard for me to imagine it being such a showstopper moment because we've seen this scene already in the general. I mean, when you watch yes. like the bridge and the train blow up in the general, a movie that, you know, happened, what, 40 years before this? Not even... Uh, 35 years before this, that's incredible. You're like, they did all of that in the silent era. Buster Keaton made that happen. So honestly, now I sound like a jerk, but I'm like, you see one train and bridge blow up. You've kind of seen them all. But no, I I felt the same way. Like I'm way more blown away by what I saw in Intolerance than, or, you know, or even in what we saw in um, that Murnau film, than what was going on here. I was like, okay, it wasn't even like a, cinematically exciting explosion. Like, you know, I'm thinking about, and I bring this movie up a lot, of course, but like even Die Hard, like you take some time <laughs> in the explosions of the buildings and the things. It's like, and that's a very simple, you know, you're not bringing a building down to the ground, but, you know, there are, I've seen a lot of explosions and they're just shot, I think, better than this. I, I don't know. I just, I was like, I rewound it actually twice because I was like, am I missing? Like, like it was, it, like I, was watching Karate Kid with my son today and I happened to walk in uh, at the very end when Daniel does the crane move and emotionally I connected that I always started welling up and I'm like oh the music and the and the way they photograph it it's they really build to a crescendo and I just didn't like I don't know maybe I'm being too harsh and I just didn't feel that you know you're hanging your hat on this one moment and I would say it was fine fine <laughs> moment it, like you know it's like like I get like Ben Hur the chariot scene that's great I will never say anything bad about that chariot scene. That chariot scene lives up to it all. This, eh, take it or leave it. No, I mean, I'm kind of with you. Like the most tense moment of that sequence where they're, where they're trying to blow up the bridge to me is just when you have um, Nicholson on the actual bridge, looking down, feeling proud of the bridge that he's built. Mm-hmm. And you, you wonder if he's going to spot the wires and turn in his own British yes. countrymen. Like, well, whose side will he be on? That emotional tension is is so much better than the actual explosion. And, and 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 then that fight in the water as they're about to cut the wire, and you know, and they and they attack the Japanese soldier, and then the idea, like this moment where uh, Nicholson is like, "Oh my God, who am I?" And and you have this moment where he has to destroy the thing he built, and I love that. I mean, that is you can't get better than that. Like it's it's sort of like he just realized he's been brainwashed or he, he sees what he's been doing and you have this Nicholson, moment where you played well, yourself. Yeah. And by the way, I, I want to give a little bit of props to David lean. Like he did not like this bridge destruction scene, by the way, he didn't want it this way, but you don't have many chances to blow up the bridge. So he had one time to do it and he really wanted it. So it would topple towards the camera, taking the train with it. Um, but, they were like the Sam Spiegel's like that's too risky. You can't do it. So the bridge does just kind of sink. 
It looked good enough, he says, but it would have been wonderful to see the whole bloody thing kill over with a moving train on top of it. And I, and I do agree with it. That that must have been a, uh, you know, like as a director, like you really want to, your whole movie is building to this and you don't even get it to shoot it the way that you want. Uh, That's you know, and that, true. Which, like, Sam Spiegel was so nervous, I think. Like what I, I, from what I read, Sam Spiegel was on tranquilizers that day. He was like, this is going to be a nightmare. Oh my God. But this is so like, like, this is like Sam Spiegel's was, M.O., Right? I mean, it's like Spiegel's <laughs> MO. Like, he's sending himself to the hospital in Lawrence of Arabia. I guess if you're working with David Lean, yes. Like, I mean, this seems like, remember when we were talking about Apocalypse Now, a mother, another movie that I think is very much in this vein of like, here's what seems like a heroic act in the name of war. Is it heroism? What is heroism? You know, let's go on this journey into the jungle of madness. And we talked so much on that film about how Francis Ford Coppola was like, I'm going crazy. I'm going mental. Everybody has to get in my headspace. Let's go nuts together. And I was thinking how much of that was influenced by Francis Ford Coppola wanting to be like David Lean making this movie. Because you know, in the making These, of this movie, yes. everybody's talking about how David Lean is going insane on people. Everybody hates him. By the end of the film, nobody wants to talk to David Lean because he's being such a crazy psychopath. He's like, we got to do this hard. We got to do this mean. He literally, you know, there's that moment in the film where, oh, and I love it, where Nicholson is talking about his life. He's standing on the bridge. The bridge is complete. Mm, beautiful and he starts scene. talking about his life. Let's listen to that. I love India. I wouldn't have had it any other way. But there are times suddenly you realize you're nearer the end than the beginning. And you wonder, you ask yourself what the sum total of your life represents. What difference your being there at any time made to anything. Or if it made any difference at all, really. Particularly in comparison with other men's careers. I don't know whether that kind of thinking is very healthy, but I must admit I've had some thoughts on those lines from time to time. And then, okay, that speech is beautiful. And right at the end of it, um, Lean is like, okay, we got it. And this is what he says. Now you can all fuck off and go home, you English actors. Thank God I'm starting work tomorrow with an American. Holy shit. By the way, I want to just give props in that scene because Alec Guinness actually screwed over uh, David Lean in that scene because there's that moment where he kind of turns and the sun is coming down and it captures his face. Like David Lean wanted it to be on his back the entire time. And apparently Alec Guinness waited uh, and kind of procrastinated throughout the day to get the light right. So he kind of was able to create that moment. And it's a beautiful shot of like the sun coming down and it just his face kind of glows. So, uh, you know, there's a lot of tit for tat here. That's true. I mean, it seems a bit kind of like revenge. I mean, apparently when um, David Lean sat down with Alec Guinness to tell him about Colonel Nicholson, um, Guinness thought that he was kind of a funny character. He was like, he's going to be a little bit comedic. He's going to be a little bit big. And Lean was like, no way. Like, if you and I were having dinner with him right now, you would find him a complete bore. And Alec Guinness was like, well, if you think you want me to play a boring character, I'm just going to quit now. And he really wanted to quit already. I'm kind of shocked they decided to work with each other Again, because the tension on the set seems insane. I mean, all of the British actors were like, this is an anti-British film. You know, right, you would I think on the that. surface, yeah. it's a pro one. Like, oh, it's about the British. They build this bridge. They're great. And the British people are like, this film is making fun of the British people and our decorum and saying our decorum is useless and that who we are is either psychopathic, you know, in the case of the, the, the crazy guy who just wants to blow everything up or, you know, self, self, self-proper, I guess, to the point of being self-defeating. 
it's well, so they all what, thought it was a... I think the the issue is is like they show the British basically following the letter of the law so much so that it's helping the enemy. Right? Yeah. Where, you know, it's claimed that the actual general or the colonel that uh, Al Guinness's character was based on, you know, was secretly sabotaging it the entire way. Like he was bringing termites to the bridge, you know, to make sure, you know, you, like it, they, but they showed him so blindly following, but I think that you need, you need to show that because in the end works, the end only works if he's blind to what he's doing. And, uh, you know, you can't have somebody who's trying to sabotage it, then gets a moment to actually sabotage it. And then he does it. It's so much more fulfilling to see him conflicted in that moment. It is. I, I love that scene where he's accused of collaborating, where Nicholson is being asked by his own commanders, like, if you are building the best bridge possible, whose side are you really on? Honestly, Clifton, there are times when I don't understand you at all. I'll try to make myself clear, sir. The fact is, what we're doing could be construed as, forgive me, sir, collaboration with the enemy, perhaps even as treasonable activity. Are you all right, Clifton? We are prisoners of war. We haven't the right to refuse work. I understand that, sir. But must we work so well? Must we build them a better bridge than they could have built for themselves? If you had to operate on Saito, would you do your best or would you let him die? Would you prefer to see this battalion disintegrate in idleness? Would you have it said that our chaps can't do a proper job? Don't you realize how important it is to show these people that they can't break us in body or in spirit? Take a good look, Clifton. One day the war will be over. And I hope that the people who use this bridge in years to come will remember how it was built and who built it. Not a gang of slaves, but soldiers, British soldiers, Clifton, even in captivity. Yes, sir. You're a fine doctor, Clifton, but you've a lot to learn about the army. And so it makes perfect sense to me that there was this insane tension on the set because all of the British people, A, were already sensitive that this was an anti-British film, but B... Lean was being such a dick to everybody that they really became like an us versus them tension on the set. Them being like, David Lean being like, you guys are mad at me. I'm going to be mad at you. We're all going to be mad at each other because I guess that's how you direct a movie. It's just anger. Well, by the way, you know, David Lean didn't even really want Alec Guinness. David Lean wanted uh, Spencer Tracy to be uh, the, to be that part. And, um, you know, they were trying to figure out how to get him in here, but Spencer Tracy read it. And he was like, no, 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 you, that part has to be played by an Englishman. Like you have to do that. And I, I think the movie would have been a little bit different and, and maybe even confusing if it wasn't played by an Englishman. But I think to your point about Al Guinness, like he does play that character in an endearing way. I don't know if it's funny, but it has life to it. It's not just an, a rule follower. I think there's an energy to that performance that feels uh, specific. Yeah, sense. there's something kind of like British schoolboy in him. Mm-hmm. There's like a naive quality to that character. I mean, that's it's, why I can't yeah. imagine like a, a Spencer Tracy working because Spencer Tracy and his hard jaw doesn't really fit. Whereas you can see Alec Guinness wishing he was just at home reading poetry in his lawn, you know, having a cup of tea. Well, you you buy that Alec Guinness is like, I'm not going to do manual labor. That's what you have <laughs> yeah. to buy. You You have to buy that someone's offended by that. And I think there's an energy and maybe there's this like, you know, uh, it's propaganda to a certain extent, but like Americans will get in there and they'll get their hands dirty and they'll do the thing. But there's something so prim and proper about a Britishman being like, no, no, I'm going to follow the rule of order. And that's not what we're going to do. I think there's 
I, I like that distance and it create it's such a brilliant character choice. You know, he literally puts his life on the line for such an inconsequential thing. It's like, I'd rather you kill me than for me to pick up a shovel. And this is the same guy who later is trying to tell other people underneath, like he's so by the letter of the law, but he's like taking sick people out of the hospital just to do the job. Like it's like, it's a very bizarre point of view, but it's all about that level of order in, in the caste system, uh, which I kind of, I just think anybody who subscribes to that in the middle of war is a fascinating character. Exactly. I mean, I love that that was the point of the Geneva Convention that they picked out to be really the centerpiece of this ethical showdown. It wasn't like, you need to be giving us this amount of food, you know, something that we can really mm-hmm. rally behind. Maybe that is, maybe that's the American envy. You know, it wasn't like, you are not letting my men get enough hours of sleep. I'm doing this for everybody's health. It was I specifically and the other officers, the other the other posh regiment of this troop will not do labor. And so it's hard for me to root for them to not do labor, even though it's in the Geneva Code. There's like that part of me that's like, well, if your men are working, you have to work. And so it's a fun trick I think they play on the audience that they're that that's the principle he's fighting on and not something like we need doctors. Well, you know, uh, I wanted to talk about something we just we kind of just got into before, too. And, and it's the idea of like we always go back to the idea that, oh, well, maybe that when a director is hard on you, he helps create this moment where you're feeling like you're actually in war. You're not being coddled. And, you know, and then all of a sudden because Man you're up, struggling. Rawr. Yeah, I went and trained with these people. And if I train with them, I know how to fire a gun. And now I am one of them. I can kill with my bare hands. I'm not just a pansy actor. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, in that, and, and I think there is like this like allure to, and it's a justification to why I am mean. And I think that going through all of this, these war movies are always so interesting and create a, such a psychological balance of bad guys because directors are making these movies about themselves. They are saying, it's okay that I treat people like shit because I am at war. Making this movie is war. So I can go do this this way. And so you get this kind of perverse, uh, this perverse justification is actually coming from such a personal place. It's not telling a story about war. It's telling a story about people or, or a person putting someone in an incredibly uncomfortable situation for the greater good. And I, I feel like that's David Lean. I think that that is, uh, I think that that is uh, Coppola. And, and uh, you know, I think that I think Oliver Stone definitely has elements of that. Like these are people that are pushing people to the breaking point. And I don't think you ever hear that about Scorsese. You don't hear like Scorsese made us, you know, eat dirt. You know, I, I think you've heard a lot of great stories about Scorsese, but there's a different personality. The, the James Cameron personality, these this epic, the people who make epics make war movies because they are, you know, Avatar is a war movie. And it's like, you know, there's. I don't know. There's Yeah, there's no, because really... there's like a key, like if you're not in conflict, you're not alive. And only stories that are about conflict are worth telling. And yes, you know, and, and it justifies the enemy. It just they they justify themselves. It's like, I am the enemy. I am Saito. You get it. You get it though. Why I have to be Saito? Because I have to be. You know, it's like, all right. Exactly. I really wish we had more archetypes of directors on this list. You know, the, there's a person I keep thinking about more and more as a huge gaping hole who's not on this list, in part because he went to AFI, and that's David Lynch. You know, David Lynch oh, is nowhere yeah. on the AFI list, and he comes through, to film through such a more element of collaboration and peace. Like, he's in charge. He's definitely in charge of his sets. 
but it seems as though he's very in touch with the human beings who work on his set as well. Like he, he creates such a different tenor. You know, he is all about like, what is uniting us in the universe? And I, I don't know if you've ever listened to like, I just started listening to some of his um, tapes about like transcendental meditation, which I know you're good at. I am not I, good at that. And I can't take lessons because we're in quarantine, but I could you use You can take it. lessons. You could do it at home. Yeah. But, uh, can you? I but thought yes. you had to go to the center. Yeah. Look, Amy, there's ways around it. I'm a th- you're like, like, I think the tenants can be pretty easily found out. Uh, it's great to have somebody to help you go through it. But I mean, uh, I learned everything in like two four-hour classes. I, maybe I'm not doing it uh, full service by explaining like that. But I think you can, you can, there's meditation you can do. Even if you had a nap, get a nap. Oh, I can't nap. I've never been able to nap. Even when I was a child, no, naps. No, an app. Oh, an app. <laughs> and get a nap. Uh, <laughs> but no, I mean, I wish we did have more of that role model of like, the grounded peacemaker, open heart director. You know, I wish that was an archetype we put forward as a person who also makes really good quality work. Well, but like, can we, can I throw it one step forward? Cause I do believe there are directors on this list that are not controversial and that, uh, you have a pleasant working environment, but are there any war directors that are like that? People who are known for epics and big films you know, I wonder if that's something that they shy away from. I, I think that this movie went through so many different directors. Uh, William Wyler, Howard Hawks, John Ford, uh, you know, all Zinneman, said no Fred to Fred Zinneman, movie. I think, also Fred, said yes. no too, High Noon. And Fred Zinneman didn't understand the movie, apparently, according to Sam Spiegel. Like, he's like he said, like, you know, he just, you know, just didn't, like, get it. Like, yeah, you know, he 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 didn't understand what he was trying to tell here. And I think maybe this idea of like putting yourself in that position, maybe this is, these are the people worthy of telling these stories is the people who are a little bit more narcissistic, are a little bit more egotistical, that see things in a very black and white way, see things in a way where maybe their harsh actions are justified because the end result is so good. And maybe that doesn't jibe. Like, you know, I, for me, I don't know if a war movie would be something that I would gravitate towards. But I think other people do 100%. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting that one of the directors who said yes to making the film um, was Orson Welles. That they offered it Mm. to Orson Welles and they said, yeah, do you want to direct the bridge on River Kwai? You can even act in the River Kwai. And he said yes to both of these things. And then he read in the newspaper that David Lena had the job. And so he saw, I think he saw Sam Spiegel at Cannes and he walked over and he poured ice water on his head as punishment. But it's hard to imagine Orson Welles making this film, although I might want to see his version of it. You know, Orson Welles is a person who was not a soldier, you know, was right. was interested in complicated men like, you know, Citizen Kane. I would love to see somebody with that sensitive touch take this on. That'd be interesting. And yet, even that ends justify the means thing, it doesn't even just extend to Lean. It extends to somebody like Spiegel. Like, there's this whole story that, you know, David Lean was having a lot of problems with his wife, Layla, at the time that they were making this. And Layla was, you know, a very sensitive person. And so um, David Lean was wanting his wife at least to come and visit to kind of check in with each other and make sure they were okay. And Spiegel secretly writes a letter to David Lean's wife and tells her not to come. And when David Lean oh, finds wow. out about this, he gets furious. And he, t- he writes this huge angry letter to, D- to Sam Spiegel. And he's like, you're a lousy leader. You are a dictator. You have no respect for human dignity. You have no respect for human individuality. And you believe that the end always justifies the means. And he accuses Spiegel of everything that we just accused him of, which 
he right. also deserves. It's amazing he didn't even see that parallel. Yeah, I mean, and I think that that's the uh, that's what makes these movies great or memorable. I mean, obviously this movie is incredibly uh, memorable and cherished, uh, and I, but it's also a movie that I wonder how many people have seen recently. It's it's it, to me it falls in that category of film. Oh, of course, Bridge on the River Kwai, that's a classic. You know, it's like you just know, like you know, it's a classic, but I don't know if you see it as a classic. You know, it's just sort of a, um, again, we didn't know that much about it. It's 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 sort of this outlier. It's a sort of like shepherded in. Of course, it's on the list. Of course, and I just don't think, in my opinion, and I know this is we've talked about this a couple times, but in my opinion, that it's worthy of being in the top 100 greatest films of all time. I think it's a no. great film and I think it's really amazing. I think what it tells is great. I think we've we've seen versions of this. I think what you said is completely correct. Lawrence of Arabia does this incredibly uh, better uh, visually and from a storytelling point of view. And I, I would even argue from an acting standpoint, it, it, it's just, I mean, it, it feels that movie transports you to a whole other world. I, I don't know how many more stories we need of conflicted soldiers. Um, I'd rather see, you know, like a cool hand Luke on this list. Not that, that these are the two that are going back to back, but this movie, I kept on longing. I, this movie made me want to see that because it, I, there was something about like rebellion and, and war and prisoners of war that like that movie, like left such a stronger impact on me. Something a movie I think about a lot, um, just for the human spirit, the triumph of the human spirit. And I think that that, that at the end of the day, this movie is a little bit about that too. I agree. I would not even hesitate to take this film off the list, honestly. I, I think we covered it. You know, I think this yeah. emotion is so is so interesting, and I think it's covered. I think we we get this. You know, we get the David Lean thing. We get the epic thing. We get Alec Guinness being in something that's not a Star Wars movie on this list. When we have Lawrence of Arabia, I don't. It, I'm shocked, honestly, that Bridge Over the Rugwai is in the 30s. I'm shocked that it was ever 13. It, I mean, it's hard the fact for me to even 13. reconcile why. Yeah, yeah, 13 blows my mind. I mean, but look, this is a list that also kicked off Fargo, you know, which is interesting and didn't replace it with a Coen Brothers movie. So there's there's some always shocking uh, changes. And it's also a list that bumps Stagecoach off the list. It's, you know, I think there's sometimes a popularity contest in the just the recognition of the title names, uh, you know, to a certain extent with a, yeah. an older crew. The only reason I would be sad if this film was off the list is just because I love that we have a movie with Sesame Hayakawa, who, you know, has, mm. I think, largely been forgotten today. He was such a huge star in the 19-teens. He was so massive. He was considered such a heartthrob. He played kind of like manipulative romantic schemers that you don't want to fall under the sway of, but you do fall under the sway of. And the fact that he was such a gigantic heartthrob, and yet without this film, I've never heard his voice before. Because he didn't right. transition into the silent era. In fact, he didn't even get a chance to not transition into the sound era. Because by 1922, there was so much anti-Asian tension in Hollywood that was beginning to rise that he largely retired early because it was harder and harder for him to have a career. And so I love being reminded that when we look at the history of the biggest stars in Hollywood, that we had Sesue Hayakawa very early on. And so to have him show up and have him imbue this character of Saito, I think maybe part of the reason why audiences loved that character so much or were able to even love him at the time is because of the love of Hayakawa and to get to see him on stage again, to see him perform. It, it's almost, 
I don't even know what it'd be like. Like I'm trying to even think of like a, an equivalent of an actor that we loved who retired way too early and then comes back, you know, 30, 40 years later and you're like, oh my God, here he is. I mean, this is 40 years after, after Sesue was making his biggest film. And that charge of getting to see him again. I mean, it breaks my heart that this film was nominated for a gazillion Oscars and the only one that it didn't win was for Sesue Hayakawa when I think I would, I would see him deserving it as much as anybody else. No, I mean, he was nominated for Best Supporting Actor at the Golden Globes and the Academy Awards. Didn't win either. But he said that even that nomination was just a highlight of his career because he felt like he was recognized for what he did. And I love what he, what he does do. He retires and he devotes his life to Zen Buddhism. Uh, he becomes a, a Zen master. Uh, and he wrote an autobiography called Zen Showed Me the Way. And I just love that it, it, it's kind of like probably no reason to go back in. You know, it's like he d- doesn't need it. Like he's found enlightenment and peace in a, di- in a different thing. Uh, and I thought that was kind of a beautiful way to, you know, kind of check out. We've talked about a lot of people checking out uh, on their own terms and uh, a, a lot of them being actresses. But I love that he did it in this way and, and kind of found a new spiritual sense. And you see, maybe this could be your future, Amy. You, you want to do TM. Maybe you should get into Zen and uh, we'll see what happens. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I actually now I love kind of mentally going back into the 1950s and seeing that William Holden is just the guy who gets paired up with our silent movie greats, you know, that you're going to put William Holden with Gloria Swanson, that then you put him again with Sesue Hayakawa. I mean, they knew each other in silent era Hollywood, like Gloria and Sesue. Yeah. And and I guess it, it's almost like if Sunset Boulevard was about a returning silent film actor who wasn't crazy and actually was great and deserved everything and shouldn't have left. <laughs> What did people think when this movie came out? You know, they did an interesting thing, David Lean, when this movie screened for critics. Um, what he did is he was like, I'm not going to let any press people in if they're late, right? I will mm-hmm. admit, press people, we can run a little late. We're used to movies starting late, so we arrive a little late, and then it becomes this like sliding scale of lateness. It's a problem. Um, but so... David Lean was very stern. He was like, I'm not even going to lock the doors when the movie starts. I'm going to lock the doors five minutes before the movie starts. Like, if you're not here that early, you're not coming in to see this movie. Very serious about it. So a lot of major critics showed up late, didn't get to see okay. the movie, but were too embarrassed to say they were didn't see it because they were late. And so when all the early reviews that come out that are raves coming out, the major folks are like, yeah. And then they finally go see it themselves and also right raves because by then the, the tone was set this movie was a classic everybody loved it immediately so there was kind of this pressure i believe at the time to like it almost nobody didn't like it wow and that and and i think that kind of bullying uh that we've talked about like we'll hear like you know like forcing forcing someone in is the reason why this movie is is maybe beloved maybe a little bit more than it should be like the fact that it was 13 on the list yeah, it puts you a bit on your heels. Uh, I was only able to actually find one negative review of it. And it was uh, Lindy, Lindsay Anderson from The New Statesman who thought the movie was so slight that he didn't even bother reviewing it more than a couple sentences. And it seems like it was a pretty big deal at the time. Like, apparently David Lean was aware of this review, was really mad at him about this review. It became a touchstone, which is surprising because it's just such a short review. It almost seems like, okay, whatever. Uh, but this is what Lindsay Anderson wrote in The New Statesman. He called it, quote, a huge, expensive chocolate box of a war picture. Inside of it is perhaps a better and ironic idea, but it takes more than the word madness repeated three times at the end of the film to justify comparisons with All Quiet on the Western Front. 
And then now he's talking more about the critics being pressured to all say they like it. He says, they'll be saying next that the new James Mansfield is better than Lubitsch. So he's just like, all y'all people are just lockstepping. I'm not even going to bother giving this a proper review. That's how I feel about this film. And now that I think about it, ending it with madness, 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 that's basically Planet of the Apes. There's something about Planet of the Apes that actually tells the story in a more, and this is going to enrage, I'm sure, some people, but a classy way. It's like there's a little bit more metaphor there. There's a little bit, you know, and there's there's more movie there. Because I do I do agree with what that, that review. is like, it's slight. We're pulling a lot of this stuff. I, I think we're pulling like basically three or four scenes with some great performances in them. But it, like to me, it failed. I think there was great flourishes here, but it failed to capture me more than... Uh, just like, oh, it's good. It's good. It's fine. You know, it's it's just not, you know, I don't know. I hate to say it's fine when it's a classic film, but it's it sort of like, it didn't emotionally get me as much as I wanted it to be or as much yeah. as I wanted it to. I mean, I don't know if I'm going to mean this tomorrow, but mm-hmm. what if we took this off and put Planet of the Apes on? I mean, look, I'm a big proponent for putting these movies that are iconic in our world on this list. And I think that, you know, Planet of the Apes is a really beautiful sci-fi film. It, it, you know, it's, yes, it's got some over-the-top elements to it, but I think as all great sci-fi does, it tells you a story and changes the specifics so you don't have to, you're not looking at yourself, you're looking at somebody else and you're learning a little bit more about yourself, whether it's like, you know, the way that Star Trek, the original series, did it too. It wasn't the best sets, it wasn't the best uh, makeup, but they actually were showing you something about society or saying something about society. I I like that. Yeah. I mean, I think that film is also, it's a complete examination of, of society, as you're saying, and of hierarchy and of, of the people that we see as less than human and humanizing them. And, you know, yeah, I'm going to mull on this thought a little bit, but I do think that maybe part of why bridge on the river Kwai has been so elevated is because of it, of sort of this attempt to redeem the people who are blacklisted by Hueck. You know, once again, we yes. have Carl Foreman writing the very first script who wrote High Noon. And once again, like kind of being blacklisted from being mentioned as one of the authors of the script and also Mike Wilson. So it was two blacklisted screenwriters, which you talked about for a second. But it, and it wasn't until the 80s that they were given this honorary Oscar. You know, it was apparently... Mm. There's kind of a lovely story to it. You know, Lean was never polite about saying that he didn't think Carl Foreman did anything. You know, he was always like, Carl Foreman's script was garbage. And I do kind of believe him. And yet there's something really beautiful in, you know, at the very end of his life, Carl Foreman asking his friend um, to really petition the board of the WGA to try to get him his credit for the Oscar, to really work on this. And apparently they finally had this big meeting with the WGA and finally, on June 25th, 1984, the WJ was like, you know what? Yes, we're going to unanimously agree that we think Carl Foreman should get the Oscar and also Michael Wilson for the script. We know that Pierre Bull did not write the script at all. And then the very next day, 10 in the morning, Carl Foreman dies. There's something uh. beautiful in he knew finally he was getting recognition, deserve it or not, let, as David Lee would go. say. And he could let go. So I think there might be something in the guilt that we as an industry feel that also helps raise up Bridge of the River Kwai. Like, yeah. we're going to do what we can to honor this film that we should have thanked these guys for more while they were alive. And we apologize for giving into the blacklist. And I do love that. And I think that there's a lot of beauty here. And I really enjoyed this conversation with you. And I think the only way for me to 
end this conversation, I know we have a couple more things to do, but is to kind of treat you to something that you always treat me to. Oh, Amy, no. um, I'd like to introduce you to an animal that has a very uh, close association to this film. Take a listen. Are you going to whistle bridge over the river Kwai? Not oh even that good. <laughs> but I thought it was very good. That was the, that was a little cockatiel. Aren't cockatiels the ones that, that live, they live until they're 80? And if you buy a cockatiel, you have to have a living will so people will know who gets your cockatiel when you die. I don't know about that, but I know that my uh, my uh, stepfather had birds. We had uh, many birds in our house. And yes, it was a big source of contention of uh, when my mom moved out here to Los Angeles, who got those birds because they couldn't keep birds in her new place. That was such a good little cockatiel. I loved him. I love birds. I love you. You don't want to get me. Can we just do a podcast on bird intelligence? Because that's one of my absolute passions. I'm very into bird intelligence. Okay. And and I loved that you picked that clip because I actually wanted to talk about that song. You know, the song that the that the cockatiel is whistling, you know, it's the Colonel Bogey March. Um and I didn't know this about it, but apparently that song, you know, they had to whistle it into the film because in 1957, if you heard that whistle, you actually knew what the lyrics were, and the lyrics were pretty nasty, and you couldn't say them on TV, but everybody knew what they were. It's like if I oh, whistled, wow. um, what's a really mean song? I don't know. Like if I whistled some, right. some diss track or something, everybody knew what the whistle was standing in for and that they were not allowed to sing the lyrics. But do you want to hear what the lyrics would have been in it during World War II? Yes. <laughs> okay oh so- <laughs> my gosh it's like the batmobile song or the batman uh you know uh christmas song <laughs> exactly but that means you know those soldiers in this scene when they're walking in into us i think with the with the weight of with with so much history between it we just think they're walking in being jaunty and defiant they they know that they are whistling about dicks that they're just whistling a big old dick insult and that's the secret joke that the Japanese don't understand in the film and that me as an audience does not understand in this year. Oh man. You know, uh, I can't imagine that the Simpsons in every year that they have done this show has not done that whistle or done some sort of a bridge explosion gag, maybe even for the opening. Amy, is there a Simpsons? Well, before we get to that, if that whistle sounds really familiar, there is an eighties movie that made it incredibly popular to our generation. Because you know that mm-hmm. we've heard this whistle before in one of the major 80s touchstones. Yes? No? Yes? Yes, of course. Uh, Breakfast Club. Right. Amy, I'm going to go out on a ledge and say that if you can whistle, you've whistled this song. I mean, it's in cartoons, it's in movies, it's it, this is a a whistling song. You know, like yes, now we know it's yeah. a dick song, but it's also a whistling <laughs> song. I'll just play you a little clip from an episode of The Simpsons called "Stark Raving Dad." Lisa, 
Her teeth are big and green, Lisa. She smells like gasoline, Lisa. La da da Lisa. She is my sister. Her birthday, I missed her. Oh no. <laughs> I mean, you know what? So maybe The Simpsons gets credit for actually knowing that this song was supposed to have lyrics all along instead of being the jaunty cell phone ringtone of plucky defiance. I I I, uh, I definitely feel that in a big, big way. Well, I mean, I've actually enjoyed this conversation a lot, and I think I've found a lot more levels than I initially thought the movie had. I still am conflicted with it, and uh, I haven't changed my mind. But uh, but that doesn't mean that this is not a great movie. No, I'm not conflicted at all. This movie's off the list in my in my world, and yet I am so happy that I watched it. I really thought I was in for like a grah, we good yeah. them bad kind of war film. I was incredibly impressed. I get. I get why it was big. I don't totally still get, I think, why it was the number one box office hit of that year. Mm-hmm. And yet I'm at peace with it. I'm happy I saw this. I thought it was really fun to talk and think about. And now I say farewell to thee. I can, we can blow up the bridge now. Well, Amy, this has been such a great conversation. I think I have appreciated this movie more talking to you about it. And I am really looking forward to next week's episode. Uh, next week's episode, we are doing a Tennessee Williams classic, A Streetcar Named Desire, um, which I feel like I may have the most familiarity with in the sense of like, it's such a big film. It's it's an iconic film, uh, you know, I think up there with, you know, Wizard of Oz and Star Wars in the sense that like we everyone knows that classic Marlon Brando scream of like, Stella, it's... I What's mean, that, that is Stella, <laughs> uh, which was done so well in The Disaster Artist when Tommy Wiseau did it uh, as well, which is amazing. Um, but no, I, I love this scream. And that scream comes out of like a, a primal want, a desire, mm-hmm. right? This moment. And, and I think that we've all been kind of trapped in our houses and, and there's things that we want to do, whether it's go to the movies or, uh, you know, go to a bar or see our friends. And we want you in your best Stella scream to yell something that you really want. So, you know, it could just be like, you know, it could be, uh, see an IMAX movie. (laughs) Whatever you can I do one. Yeah. Uh, uh, okay. Okay. Buy a big gulp, but put in one squeeze of every single different sort of flavor. <laughs> suicide, I love it. Yeah, uh, well, suicide. You know that I name? Love it. <laughs> of course, of course. I'm no, I'm no slouch. Uh, well, give us a call at Unspooled uh, at seven four seven six 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 five eight two four. That's seven four seven six 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 five eight two four, and give us your best Stella scream about something that you want that you have not been able to get for a long time. Uh, again, seven four seven six 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 five eight two four. Amy. Uh, Streetcar Named Desire is available pretty much any way you want to get movies. Uh, and you know, one thing that we haven't really mentioned on the show is you can get movies through your local public library and you don't even have to go to the local public library. You can actually go online and rent movies digitally. It's like Apple TV, but for the public library. Uh, the, so support your public libraries and watch some of these movies, uh, that way as well. Yeah, it is a tremendous resource. And also, I can't praise archive.org enough, too. If you're a person who also loves to go trolling for ancient old silent films, archive.org is amazing. It has been filling in the gap as I try to research this book without uh, being able to go to the library. They have so many old books on there that I've just been able to pour through. Bless you, archive.org. If you have a library subscription, you can also just sign in there and use it. They are the best. 
yes and they're always fundraising so yeah i love them all right well uh we'll see you next week for streetcar named desire 